Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 33, Disturbing Social Psychology Experiments, and I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, we're going to look at three very famous classic experiments in social psychology, the Ash Conformity Experiment, the Stanford Prison Experiment, and the Milgram Obedience Experiment. I'm going to explain the experiments, explain what they're about and how they were conducted, take a look at the results and uh, see perhaps the surprising nature of said results. Then I'll discuss some replications and extensions of these uh, original studies that were done later on to expound and, and test the results. And we'll look at uh, I'll take a look at an analysis of the experiments to uh, discuss their validity and have a look at some real-world applications of what we can learn from these experiments. I've grouped all these three together because although they study somewhat different things, they're all, I think, quite disturbing in their implications they have about perhaps human nature or human interactions. And uh, very, very classic, as I said, uh, experiments to study in social psychology courses and the like. So now that I've whet your appetite, let's start with the Ash Conformity Experiment. So this experiment was conducted in 1951 by Solomon Ash. The basic idea of the, of the experiment was that he took a bunch of uh, college students, seven or nine. Each of the groups of students was shown a card with four lines on it. One was a reference line, and then there were three other lines sort of next to it. And basically all you had to do was pick which of the three lines was the same length as the reference line. Now, I mean, this could be difficult if the lines were pretty close, but the experiment was deliberately done so that the lines were... It was very obvious which answer was correct. I mean, one was like five centimetres longer, one five centimetres shorter. You can look this up if you want to check the actual originals for yourselves, but it was very obvious. In controlled versions where they just had one subject um, doing this by themselves, they got it right like 99% of the time, so it was really easy. So, as I said, they did this. They picked the right line, or what they thought was the right line, um, in groups of around eight or so. However, what they didn't know was that was that uh, in groups of nine, eight of the subjects were actually confederates of the experiment, or you know, the group size varied a bit, but every subject in the group except for one was actually a confederate of the experimenter, which means that they were in on it. And and in some of the trials, the Confederates had been instructed to deliberately make ridiculous judgments or incorrect judgments about which line was correct, but to unanimous, unanimously agree with each other. So in some of the trials, they were told, you pick, pick number two, even though that's clearly not the right answer, or pick number three or whatever. The point of the study was to see whether the one other subject who wasn't a Confederate would go along with the group or not. Would they go along with what everyone else was saying, even though it was clearly wrong? Would they conform, in other words? Or would they go with what they thought was correct. This is why this is called the conformity study, because it was a study of whether people would conform to a group norm or not. So as I said, 99% of the time, when people were just doing this by themselves, they made the correct judgment. So how often or how much do you think people would conform with the wrong answer when eight other people were saying that it was true, even though you clearly saw that it wasn't? Well, the answer was, on average, about one-third of the time. The average conformity rate across all the trials was 33%. A total of 75% of the subjects, so this is the people who aren't uh, in on the experiment, 75% of them conformed to the wrong answer at least once, and 50% of them conformed on more than half of the trials that they were involved in. Interestingly, only 5% always conformed on every single trial, so most people conformed at least, conformed some of the time, but not all of the time, which is somewhat interesting in and of itself. But the overall rate of conformity was 33%. Um, so Ash, Ash fiddled around with this a bit to see how much of an effect he could get with, with different variations in the length of the lines. He found basically the same effects of conformity when he got the um, subjects to declare that a 
basically around 30 centimeter line was equivalent to a 10 centimeter line. So basically, he got people conforming 33% of the time to say that a 10 centimeter line was the same length as a line three times as long, which is obviously, you know, not true. So people are a substantial portion of the time willing to uh, say things that are flatly contradictory to basic sensory impressions. Now, an interesting part of this experiment was Ash asked people why they made such obviously incorrect judgments after the experiment. Um, so some of the reasons that they gave were that, well, they thought they must have been looking at the line widths or something like that. They thought they must have been doing something wrong, or I just assumed it, or they said, I just assumed it was an optical illusion, or comments like, if eight out of nine people made the same choice, I must have missed something in the instructions, or I must have done something wrong. Basically, that's what most people thought. They, they thought that if they were getting it wrong, on such an obvious, easy task, they must have missed something. And they were essentially using the uh, information provided by the selections of the other people to infer something about the situation that they had not otherwise picked up, or that you know, they thought they hadn't picked up. Um, and pretty much everyone in the environment, uh, sorry, in this experiment felt the, uh, reported feeling anxious and feared disapproval from others and, and was very self-conscious of the situation, even if they didn't conform. And they're often, when they, did conf- when they didn't conform, when they said they disagreed, like, they were often very highly pol- apologetic about disagreeing and, and clearly embarrassed by it. So uh, you can see photos. I've seen photos of this experiment. It's immediately easy at a glance to see which of the people in the trial is the actual subject and which are the Confederates because the subject looks just very uh, discomforted and uh, anxious and concerned about what's going on, whereas everyone else is just perfectly relaxed. So you can see that just in this basic experiment, people get very anxious and concerned when they are asked to potentially, you know, disagree on a seemingly simple issue with, um, uh, with a bunch of their peers. So this experiment has been replicated in a bunch of different ways, some by Ash and some by other experimenters. Um, here are some of the variations that, that have been done. One important alteration was the presence of a dissenter in the group, that is, someone, uh, one other person who was uh, picking the right choice rather than deliberately picking the wrong one like all of the, uh, previously all of the uh, Confederates had done. He found that the presence of only a single dissenter among the group of Confederates was enough to pretty much completely get rid of the conformity effect. So if there were nine people and eight of them all agreed with themselves, then the conformity effect was high. But if only one of them disagreed, then pretty much the conformity effect completely went away. So the presence of dissent seems to be very powerful in social situations like this. Another rather interesting effect is the attractiveness of other members in the group. People, the, the conformity effect was increased when the attractiveness of the other members of the group was, uh, was higher. Uh, another factor that was varied was the complexity or the difficulty of the task that was being done. Now, in the original case, it was just judging the length of lines, which was a pretty easy task. The more difficult you make the task, the higher the level of conformity is, which sort of makes sense because you expect people to be more likely to go with, other, to go with the crowd if they're less sure of themselves. Another factor was the cohesiveness of the group. So people tend to conform more if friendships or mutual dependencies within the group were set up beforehand. So if there were people that they knew, they were more likely to conform than if they were complete strangers or people that they felt some sort of connection to. Another important variation in the experiment was that in the original experiment, people had to publicly announce their answer. I should have said this before, actually. Um, what they did was they went around the circle, and the, the actual subject, the only non-Confederate, was one of the last to announce their answer, so that they got to hear that everyone else was agreeing with, what, uh, w- with the wrong answer. And that's what put a lot of the pressure on for them to conform. When you altered the experiment so that um, the subject just had to write down their answer, 
instead of calling it out. So everyone else called theirs out, but the subject was allowed to write it down because obviously you had to do that. Otherwise, they wouldn't. The subject wouldn't know that everyone else was picking a different answer. Um, conformity was reduced to an average of about 12.5%, which is substantially less than the 33% in the original experiment. Although it's still surprisingly high when, when you're given that the the the, the issue of looking stupid is, is out of the question because they're anonymously writing down their answer. Um, still relatively high rates of conformity. And a later study by Deutsch and Gerard found average rates of conformity of 23%, even with high anonymity in the conditions of, of responding and high certainty about the answer. So that would be very obvious difference in line lengths and high anonymity in terms of who is uh, who knows what your answer is given. So it seems there are multiple effects going on here. One is that people are feeling anxious and uh, disconcerted at disagreeing with the rest of the group, and so they're going along with the crowd even though they think that the rest of the group is wrong. That's part of the effect, because when you um, increase anonymity, the rates of conformity fall. But there also seems to be part of an effect which is informational, which is that people are using the fact that other people are disagreeing with them in an apparently simple task to infer that they must have done something wrong or misunderstood something, and so that they actually think that they are wrong which is, uh, in some sense, rational, actually. Those who tend to conform typically are people who have high anxiety and low social status and need for approval from others. One very interesting replication of this, well, it's not exactly a replication, but it's another experiment which which was conducted by Milgram, the same guy from the Milgram Obedience Experiment, which we'll talk about later on in this episode, found that if one individual stops and stares at the sky on a busy street, so just starts looking up and 4% 4% of people would stop as well, and 40% of people would look. So this is just random passers-by. 40% would look up, but only 4% would stop. However, if 15 people stop and look up at the sky, the numbers increased to 40% of passers-by stopping, as opposed to 4% before, and 90% of people looking up the, at the sky, as opposed to 40% before. So, once again, that's kind of not surprising. I've actually seen data where they have groups of all different sizes looking up at the sky, and you see the rates of passers-by stopping looking up dramatically increases as you get more than like two or three it doesn't take very many um but it's the key thing seems to be like more than one or more than two people doing something and other people immediately start conforming there's a lot of evolutionary psychological basis for this sort of thing homo sapiens being a social species and there being elements of almost hardwired in a sense desire to or tendency uh, for humans to conform to the behavior of those around them you can, uh, you can see this in, for example, the socialization of children, uh, picking up of accents, tendency for customs um, or you know, norm, social norms to become uh, strongly uh, ingrained in a society or in a, in a culture. These are things we'll look at in future episodes, by the way. Okay, so that's the Ash Conformity Experiment. You might not have found that terribly disturbing, but I deliberately put it first because it's probably the least disturbing of the three, although I found it somewhat disturbing uh, that, that people will essentially say things that are apparently patently wrong, just because other people are. Now we'll move on to the Stanford Prison Experiment, which is, which is quite famous, actually. You may have heard of it. But there's a little bit of, uh, little bit of misinformation out there about what exactly happened, so I'll, I'll try and break through some of that. So the Stanford Prison Experiment was held in 1971 at Stanford University, as the name would indicate, by a team of researchers led by the, psycho- the psychology professor Philip Zimbardo. So this Zimbardo was a rather interesting character. Uh, what they did was they got 24 male students, so once again, this experiment was on the students. These 24 male students were judged to be psychologically and physically healthy and stable. So they deliberately tried to pick, you know, fairly normal and stable people. And uh, so they get these 24 stable uh, male students, and they, were, and the, they were randomly assigned to roles of either prisoners or guards in a mock prison situation, which was conducted in the basement of the psychology building uh, at the university. 
So it, it was basically it was called a prison, called the prison experiment because it was a mock prison environment. The, particip- the participants in the experiment were mostly white middle class, and as I said, they were male college students. And the group was deliberately selected to avoid those with to exclude people with criminal background or psychological impairments or anything else like that. So they were deliberately picked to try and be stable individuals and ordinary individuals, and then randomly assigned to either prisoners or guards. Okay, so the instructions. One of the controversies in this experiment is the degree to which people were play acting deliberately, and the degree to which they had truly internalized their roles. And you'll see what I mean by that in a minute. But um. The people who were randomly assigned to be guards were given wooden batons and, uh, I believe, types of some type of uniform to establish their status. Yeah, clothing similar to the actual prison guards. They were given uniforms and uh, also mirrored sunglasses to prevent eye contact with the prisoners. So they were essentially given clothing and props to uh, represent their status. Prisoners were likewise fitted with uncomfortable smocks and stocking caps, a chain around one ankle, and they were also assigned numbers that were sewn onto their uniforms, and guards were instructed to call prisoners by their numbers rather than their names, so as to essentially dehumanize them and treat them more like prisoners and so on. The prisoners were actually full-on arrested in their homes and taken to the university in a police car. They were charged, well pretend the charge with armed robbery, and their fingerprints were taken, their mugshots were taken, and they were transported um, from the police station, where they were actually taken, to the, the mock prison in the, in the university, and given their numbers and, and smocks and everything else. So in the mock university, there was a, a number of cells, a prison yard, a, a smaller cell for solitary confinement, and, um, and a few other rooms, like for uh, eating and so on like that. But it, yeah, it was a mock prison setup. The prisoners were supposed to stay in their cells all day and night until the end of the study, which I think was supposed to last for like a week or two weeks or something. The guards worked in teams of three for eight-hour shifts. So the guards didn't actually have to stay on during the night or after their shift during the experiment. So only some of the guards were were there uh, at any one time, and the rest of them were off doing whatever they were doing. Uh, Whereas the prisoners had to stay there all the time. So that, that is an important difference. Um, a number of the rules that were given was that the prisoners were supposed to follow the orders of the guards... And they were supposed to ask permission to do anything, even going to the toilet or eating or anything like that. So there was a definite effort to try and make it feel like a prison environment and to make the prisoners feel like like they were subjected to the authority of the guards. Uh, However, the guards were instructed not to physically harm the prisoners, but they were told to keep order and enforce the rules. And they were allowed to make life uncomfortable for the prisoners if this was helpful to enforcing the rules. So they weren't allowed to physically harm the prisoners, but they were allowed to make life uncomfortable for them. That was the instructions they were given. Okay, so, so that's the setup. We've got a mock prison environment, Stanford University, um, randomly, r- randomly selected bunch of apparently normal and stable male students who are being put in these roles of prisoners or guards. Okay, so before too long, the prison guards, by all accounts, started acting rather mean towards the prisoners. Um, so some examples of the things that they asked them to do. Uh, they decided to call the roll during the middle of the night to make the prisoners do push-ups, with the guards putting their feet on the middle of the prisoners' back during push-ups, which is obviously not going to make the job any easier. On the second day of the experiment, the guards crushed a rebellion of the prisoners and became more verbally abusive towards them. After 36 hours, one prisoner apparently began to act crazy, as Zimbardo described it. Um, he began to scream and shout and curse and seem sort of out of control. Um, eventually he had to be released from the experiment. Sanitary conditions apparently declined quite quickly as the the guards refused to allow some of the prisoners to to go to the toilet anywhere but a bucket, which was in their cell, so that's kind of gross. Mattresses were given to the prisoners, but the guards punished the prisoners by confiscating these and leaving them to sleep on the concrete floor. 
Several of the guards became more cruel, um, verbally abusing the prisoners, as I said, exhibiting rather sadistic tendencies and harsh punishments, like, as I said, taking their, um, taking their mattresses or their food or putting them in solitary confinement, things like that. Apparently, on the fifth day of the experiment, all of the volunteer prisoners, well, I mean, all of them were volunteers, but all of the prisoners asked to be released from the experiment, even though that would mean forfeiting their pay. So, at this point, um, I think it was like five or six days, yeah, six days uh, the experiment had gone on, it was sort of ambiguous as to whether the prisoners were allowed to leave or not, because they were there voluntarily. I mean, they weren't really arrested. As far as I know, when they asked to leave, I don't exactly know what happened. It's hard to get um, detailed reports of this sort of thing, but they, well, they didn't leave anyway. So it was a bit ambiguous as to, was this real or was this a play act? Were they really prisoners? Could they really leave if they wanted to? This was one of the issues of the experiment, which we'll come back to later on. Eventually, Zimbardo aborted the experiment after six days of the planned two weeks, when basically a a graduate student uh, sort of saw the conditions of the experiment and objected and said, oh, basically, this is is getting out of hand here. We We need to end this now. And Zimbardo said that of more than 50 people who had observed the experiment, I don't exactly know who these people were, but presumably faculty members, maybe some of the police and other individuals, um, this graduate student was the only one who questioned the morality or the sense of this experiment. And so, um, as a result of this, uh, this concern being raised, the experiment was discontinued after only six of the planned 14 days. What's the real point of this experiment? Why is it such an issue? Well, the main issue is because it seems to indicate that people will do bad things to other people if you put them in a situation of power over them. This is the basic idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It seems that this experiment sort of confirms that sort of finding, that that fairly ordinary people um, and stable individuals could become quite mean and sadistic given the right environment. I haven't exactly done justice to the tale properly in in this episode. It might be worthwhile to go and read accounts of this to get a bit more of a feel as to the sort of, of the, the details of the situation and how the the guards treated the prisoners and so on. No, as I could nothing in, in along lines of physical abuse that I could tell, but a lot of psychological abuse and uh, sadistic, nasty treatment and verbal abuse. Even though they weren't instructed explicitly to do any of those things, they were just instructed to keep order. So uh, you might wonder how representative these findings are of you know, real-world situations or how valid are they outside of the confines of this original experiment. And as I've said, there were, there were a number of criticisms of this experiment. One is that Zimbardo himself took on the role of the, uh, like the overseer or the, 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 um, essentially the boss of the prison. So he himself was involved in his own experiment, which is methodologically problematic. Um, he, so he potentially could have influenced the results in some ways, subtle or not-so-subtle ways. Um, another criticism is that... Um, as I said, people were just play-acting. They knew it wasn't real, or at some level knew it wasn't real, so they just played the roles that they thought were expected of them. Zimbardo countered this by saying, well, even if there was some degree of role-playing initially, quite quickly the prisoners and guards internalised their roles. Um, that is, sort of really came to identify with the positions that they were occupying and, and the, uh, the situation that they were in. And so it quickly evolved into more than just role-playing. Another concern was that there, there may have been selection bias in terms of the people involved in the experiment. So... Because of this concern, some researchers at uh, Kentucky University, sorry, Western Kentucky University, recruited students for a study using an advertisement similar to one to the one used in the original experiment, both with and without the words prison life appearing in the advertisement. So this is the key difference, whether the words prison life were or were not included in the advertisement. And they found that students volunteering for a study with prison life in the title um, possessed greater dispositions towards abusive behavior than those who 
volunteered for the one without those words in the study. I don't know exactly how they measured that, I presume from some sort of personality test or something. I'd have to check those details. But basically, there does seem to be some evidence that there may have been a selection effect in terms of the people who volunteered for the study, just simply based on the nature of that study. I myself, for example, could much more easily imagine myself uh, wanting to be involved in, say, a Star Trek experiment or a science fiction experiment than a prison experiment. So you, you can perhaps imagine how there may have been some selection bias in terms of particularly cruel or sadistic or whatever people joining up for that study. As I said, the other key finding of this experiment, apart from the the power corrupts thing, is that is that it seems to lend support to a situational attribution of behavior rather than a dispositional. Now, what that means is that the, the situational attribution of behavior means people behave the way they do because of the situation they are in. And if you put them in the right situation, they'll behave in a certain way. The dispositional attribution of behavior says that people behave the way they do mostly because of who they are, something internal to them, whether that be genetics or the way they were brought up or whatever. And it's they will behave in sort of similar ways regardless of the situation they're in. Now, most people would say there's elements of both, but the question is how important is situational versus dispositional elements in, in people's behavior. And the Stanford Prison Experiment leans very strongly in the, disp- excuse me, in the situational attribution of behavior model. So that it seems to be the situation people were placed in that's most important rather than the uh, dispositions of those individuals. Because ordinary, apparently, psychologically stable individuals were placed in this uh, unusual environment and we seem to get the, the sort of behaviours that we would have expected from much less stable, much less normal individuals. And um, I think that's perhaps the key takeaway message from these three studies is that uh, situation matters a lot for human behaviour. The Milgram obedience experiment, I think, is the best... Uh, illustration of that, and uh, so we'll talk about that later on in the episode. Now, as I said, there have been a number of criticisms of the Stanford Prison Experiment um, based on its methodology, and so some of the findings have been disputed on those grounds. And partly in order to uh, address some of those criticisms, there have been a number of replications, or you might say quasi-replications, of the Stanford Prison Experiment. One of them recently was what you might call the BBC prison study, which was conducted in Britain in 2002 by the BBC. They obtained very different results with a fairly similar setup as Zimbardo had. It wasn't conducted at a university, but I think it was a a custom-built facility that was like a modern prison, and you had guards and, and prisoners and all that sort of thing. In this study, rather than the guards behaving sadistically and authoritatively towards the prisoners, the guards actually seemed reluctant to exercise their authority to the extent that the prisoners actually launched a rebellion and overthrew the guards and uh, sort of took control of the prison themselves. This may have been owing to a lack of clear leadership amongst the guards or a clear mandate to be able to use force to enforce, uh, physical force to be able to enforce prisoner compliance. So, quite interesting that a similar setup had such different results. Um, from my reading of, about that study, it seemed like from the from the beginning, the guards were never very comfortable with their situation or with their position and were never very willing to enforce the rules properly or, or use their authority. That may have been uh, because there weren't very many guards. I think there were only like four of them or something, maybe maybe six. Similar in the original study, that may have been simply due to a random difference in the characteristics of the individuals um, being more or less prone to be willing to use uh, the force or enforce the rules or whatever. It's hard to say because we don't really have the data on that, but it is interesting. And if you want more information on that, look up BBC Prison Study. Uh, There there was a television series made about it. Another interesting case, which um, is perhaps not as well documented as as one might like, is called The Third Wave. It's worth looking up. This was an experiment uh, conducted in an American high school in the 1960s. 
Now, once again, it, it's hard to find out exactly how well documented this is, but it does seem like that it really happened. Basically, from what I've read, a history teacher attending a history teacher who um, had a contemporary world history class. Um, they were doing a study of Nazi Germany. Um, so as part of this class, the, the teacher was trying to explain to his students how the German population could claim ignorance of the of the Holocaust and how they were so willing, or seemingly willing, to support Nazis and all that sort of thing. So he was sort of having trouble convincing his students of this and explaining it to them, so he, he decided to show them instead. What he did was he sort of built a, a movement in his class, and with other students as well, apparently, called the Third Wave, which he told his students was aimed at eliminating democracy, and they had their own, uh, they had their own salute or something like that, and their own uh, slogans, and they developed an in-group, out-group sort of, uh, sort of, sort of feeling. Um, once again, it's worth reading up a bit more about this to uh, get get a feel for what was done. But um, it didn't exactly... I mean, it wasn't a replication of the Stanford Prison Experiment, but it, what it did was would, it seemed to indicate the, the presence of similar dynamics going on about people being very sort of malleable to the situation they're in, that if they're placed in a situation uh, where uh, strong group identity and conformity is valued, then uh, that is something that you will tend to see um, reflected in their behavior. They'll behave in accordance with the environment they're in. Once again, a situational rather than uh, dispositional explanation of behavior. The final experiment that we're going to look at in this episode is the Milgram Obedience Experiment, and this is by far, in my view, the most disturbing of the three. This is not quite as famous as the Stanford Prison Experiment, perhaps, but but still rather well known. Okay, so in the original experiment, Milgram... Uh, who was a psychologist. Uh, I believe the the original was conducted in the 60s at some point. Um, The original experiment was characterized as a study about the role of punishments in helping learning. That was what the subjects were told, although that wasn't the real purpose of the experiment. But the, the setting was that the subject was given the role of being a teacher and a confederate of the experimenter, although the, the subject didn't know they were a confederate, was given the role of being a learner. The, the teacher and the learner were placed in two separate rooms where they could communicate, I think by a um, radio or telephone or something like that, but they couldn't see each other in the two different rooms. And the experimenter was uh, placed in the same room as the teacher and they were instructing the teacher what to do. So the the subject or the teacher was told that the um, was told, as I said, that the the purpose of the experiment was to study the effect of punishment on memory and, and learning. The teacher was placed in front of a large electric shock generator, which was which had uh, thirty switches on it, each labelled with a voltage uh, from going from ten to four hundred and fifty volts, and. At the switches at the at the high end of the voltage range, were they had labels like extreme shock and danger severe shock, and the very last one had a triple X at the end, um, so to indicate danger and, and potential for harm. The the subject was given a sample forty five volt shock to convince them that the apparatus was real, that it really did deliver electric shocks. So this is an electric shock generator, which looked big and scary basically, and it had lots of different notches on it corresponding to different volts. The teacher was then given a list of word pairs that he was to recite to the learner, and the learner was to recite back to them in the correct order or the correct pairs or something like that. Um, if the learner got it right, then they moved on to the next one, the next pair. If the learner got it wrong, um, then the teacher was to administer a shock to them, uh, and the voltage of that shock increased in 15-volt increments for each wrong answer. So the, the more they got it wrong, the, the higher voltage shock they received or the learner received. Um, the learner, by the way, just pressed a button to indicate which of the options they selected for their response, so the the teacher could see which of the options that they selected. 
and tell if it was the right one or not. The learner was uh, led to a... So, so once again, we said that the learner and the teacher are in different rooms. The, the teacher saw while the learner was led to the other room and was strapped into what looked like an electric chair. So the, the, teacher, the, the, the teacher was shown this. Remember, the teacher is the real subject. Um, the experimenter uh, applied electrode paste to the learner's arms to, as they said, assure good electrical contact and strap the learner's arms into the chair so that it didn't look like they could escape. So, so the teacher was shown all this sort of to convince them that the, that the learner was really you know, in the chair and they were really receiving shocks. And as I said, they also, had the, they also received the sample 45-volt shock to convince them the device was real. So the key point is that the subject, the real subjects, the teachers, believed that the learners were receiving real shocks for every wrong answer. In reality, this wasn't the case. In reality, what was happening is that there were no real shocks administered, except for the 45 sample one, that that was real. But um, the learner was a confederate who was just acting, going through the motions. But the key thing is that the, the subjects thought that it was real. And as far as I could tell, there's never really any evidence of people suspecting otherwise. Not for the most part, anyway. After the Confederate was separated from the subject, the Confederate set up a tape recorder, which was integrated with the shock generator, so that it played pre-recorded sounds for each shock level. So the same sounds were played at, at a given shock level for each uh, participant in the experiment. So, so that was consistent throughout. Uh, and, and these pre-recorded sounds uh, went more or less as follows. At 150 volts, the learner began to complain loudly about a heart problem and demanded to be let out of the experiment. At, at 270 volts, they began to scream when shocked. At 330 volts, after a very intense scream and repeatedly demanding to be let out, the learner fell silent and made no further responses for the remainder of the shocks. Um, and I believe that um, near the end of it, they, they stopped. the learner stopped responding as well, so they stopped giving answers. And the uh, the the teacher was instructed to just continue delivering shocks then to treat a non-answer as, as a wrong answer. Um, I believe there were also other things like banging and yelling as well um, and other complaints at various points. But yeah, that's the key idea. So, so screams, banging, complaints, wrong answers or, and no answers getting more severe as the number of sh uh, the voltage of the shocks increased. Now, if at any time during the experiment the subject indicated their desire to, to stop or not to d deliver any more shocks, remember this is the teacher who's the actual subject, um, they were given a succession of verbal prods by the experimenter in this order, same every time. The first was, please continue. The second was, the experiment requires that you continue. The third was, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And the, th and the fourth was, you have no other choice, you must go on. Now, if the subject still wished to go on with the experiment after four successive verbal prods, the experiment was halted. So if the, if the subject was really insistent after all those four prods, they did actually stop. Otherwise, the experiment was only halted after the subject, the teacher, had given the maximum 450-volt shock three times in succession. Um, there were also specific prods which were written up and, and, and given... Well, which were decided on beforehand and then uh, given by the experimenter if the teacher made specific comments. So one thing that a lot of people asked was if there was any permanent physical harm that was caused by the shocks. The experimenter to that was always replied, the shocks may be painful, but there is no permanent tissue damage, so please continue. Another thing was that the experimenter was very clear in that they would take all responsibility for any problems or any, any results of the experiment, that the, the, uh, the, the teacher was not to worry about that. Okay, so, to, to recap, we've got a teacher delivering what they think to be electric shocks to a learner um, who is actually not receiving shocks, but the uh, teacher thinks they are. Um, the shocks being of successively higher voltages as the experiment continues and with the learner in apparent distress and great pain and potential, potentially actually having 
suffered a heart attack or died near the end of the experiment because they stopped responding and the voltage was, was quite high. So what, what do you think would be the result of this? Do you think, remember, that all you had to do in order to get the experiment to stop as a teacher was to refuse to administer the shocks even after four successive verbal prods, which were actually quite subtle, uh, not subtle, which were actually um, not particularly forceful if you think about it. Please continue. The experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. You have no other choice. Please, you must go on. That's not exactly yelling at someone or uh, really trying to persuade them. So you might think that if people thought the experiment was wrong or was um, unnecessary or whatever, that, that they would just ignore such prods and, and uh, stop anyway. Before conducting the experiment, Milgram asked a number of Yale University psychology majors to predict the, the behavior of the teacher, so predict the outcome. I think he also asked, asked some professional psychiatrists or something like that about the results as well before they were, before they were, uh, before the results were actually before the experiment was conducted, only a very small fraction of the teachers, something like one percent, were predicted to be prepared to inflict the maximum 450 voltage. So people didn't think it would be very common. Basically, they just thought a few whack job psychopaths would be willing to do that. Anyone else would not administer uh, such high shocks to an innocent person for no reason, just because some guy tells them to. Some well, apparently legitimate authority, as the experimenter was. The experimenter was wearing a white lab coat, by the way, and it was conducted at the university, which which is important, and we'll talk about that a bit more later on. So there, there was an element of legit- legitimacy there. Okay, so what percentage of participants do you think continue to administer shocks, even in the, in the higher range? As I said, uh, at the time, psychology majors and psychiatrists thought it'd be about 1% would go on to the, the 450 uh, final shock. As you might imagine, it was higher than that, the answer was 65%. 26 out of 40 participants administered the experiment's final 450-volt shock, though many were very visibly and verbally uncomfortable in doing so. But fully two-thirds of everyone in the experiment delivered that final shock. And fully 85% of the participants continued to administer strong and very strong shocks, even after the learner had expressed substantial, dis- substantial distress and asked to be let out of the experiment. So um, an additional 20% of people um, were willing to administer strong, very strong shocks to someone who was clearly under distress and had um, specifically asked to be let out of the experiment. So that's a very large majority. And at some point, every single participant, all of the 40, asked, uh, so stop, stopped and questioned the purpose of the experiment. Many were visibly uncomfortable administering the shocks. Some said they would refund the money they were paid for participating. Many displayed nervous laughter, stuttering, swearing and trembling, repeatedly asked if they should continue, asked if the man was okay, asked who would take responsibility. Um, as we saw in the Ash Conformity experiment, uh, people were very, very uncomfortable doing this, but almost everyone did. Or I should say, 65% of people went all the way, and 85% of people went a good portion of the way. So that's still 15% of people who refused to administer um, even strong shocks. There, there is a graph which I saw somewhere which shows exactly how the behavior of, of the teachers dropped off as the experiment continued. Interestingly, I think virtually, I think 100% of the subjects were, were happy to administer the shocks uh, initially and for, and for a while, even though they were painful. The No one dropped out until the, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, until the the learner requested to be left to to um to be allowed to leave the experiment and and started to scream and really make it make an issue. But even there, only like fifteen percent of people dropped out around that point. Most people continued going on further and um, mostly to the end. Okay, so as with the Stanford Prison experiment, you might imagine that this is just some 
weird result. I mean, it's not a very large sample size. It's only 40. Uh, perhaps there was some selection bias there. Perhaps Milgram had, had some um, had uh, designed the study incorrectly or there was something else strange going on. So, But this experiment, much more so than the Ash Conformity or Stanford Prison, this experiment has been replicated many, many times in dozens of occasions, many by Milgram himself, but many also by later experimenters. And as with the Ash uh, Conformity experiment as well, there have been various manipulations and alterations of the uh, conditions, conditions of the experiment to see how they would change the results. But uh, the general finding that most people conform is very robust. So Thomas Blass, Blass performed a meta-analysis, which is an analysis of experimental results, basically, of, of a large number of them, and you pull them together and try and find the overall effect. Anyway, he performed an, a meta-analysis on the results of repeated performances of the uh, Milgram experiment. He found that the percentage of participants who were prepared to inflict fatal voltages, so fatal shock voltages, um, on learners remains remarkably constant, around 60 to 66% uh, of participants, regardless of time or place. So Milgram's results were quite typical. They weren't a fluke. This has been replicated on different people in different environments, in different circumstances. They seem to be quite robust. So that's quite disturbing. Let's look at some of the more specific variations and see how we can, uh, how they could increase or decrease the percentage um, of people willing to d- administer shocks. So as you might expect, uh, one obvious thing to, to change is the immediacy of the teacher and the learner. Generally, when the, the victim, so the person being shocked, that is the learner, when their physical immediacy was increased, that is when they were moved closer to the subject, when, they were, um, when, when the subject could see them and the closer they were to them, the, more, the, the lower was compliance. So people are less willing to shock people that they can see and are in direct contact with compared to people in another room. The reverse effect is observed with the physical immediacy of the experimenter. The closer the experimenter is and the more directly they have in contact with the, with the teacher, the, more, uh, the higher was compliance. In one of the variations of the experiment where participants received t- instructions from the experimenter by telephone as opposed to the experimenter being in the room with them telling what to do, uh, compliance all the way through decreased to 21%, down from 65%. Very interestingly, um, a number of participants a number of participants pretended to continue with the experiment by, administer the sho- by administering the shocks um, in accordance with the experimenter's orders, even though they weren't actually doing it. So they were, they were faking obedience to the experimenter, even though they knew it was an experiment, and they could have just said, I don't want to do this. But apparently it's socially difficult to defy authority in that way, and we'll come back to that when we do the analysis of this experiment. One variation of the experiment was held where, in the, this is the one where the physical immediacy of the learner was, uh, was greatest. The participants actually had to physically hold the learner's arm onto a shock plate, although it wasn't a real shock plate, but they thought it was. Only 30% of subjects went to the end of the experiment uh, and delivered the, the 450 volts shock. But still, that's about one in three people willing to deliver fatal voltage shocks to people while physically holding their arm to the, the shock plate. That's quite surprising. Um, In another variation, women were the participants. I believe it was only men in the first version, many of the versions. Obedience was not significantly different. Another variation of the experiment conducted by Milgram was uh, not held at the university. As I said before, uh, one one proposition was that the being held at and and having a connection to Yale University um, lent an air or a significant feeling of legitimacy towards what was going on, which was affecting the, the behavior. So this in this version, it was held in a um, rather dingy office with no apparent connection to Yale University. Um, in these conditions, obedience dropped to 40, about 48%, although the, the sample size was, I think, fairly small in this condition, uh, but still relatively high obedience. 
Another thing he did was sort of combine the uh, the Ash conformity experiment with with his own obedience paradigm by uh, incorporating additional Confederate teachers. So this is pe- these are additional teachers in the experiment, people delivering shocks. Except they're not really teachers; they're Confederate. They're not really subjects; they're Confederates of the experimenter. But the real subject, the real teacher, doesn't know that. Now, remember, in the Ash conformity experiment, we found that the existence of only one dissenter was enough to significant to basically eliminate the effect of conformity. And we find a very similar thing in the Milgram obedience experiment. In one version, where two additional teachers refused to comply with eliminating shocks, uh, with delivering shocks, only ten percent of participants continued uh, on with the experiment, which is perhaps still more than you would have thought, but a lot less than sixty-five. Similarly, there was an, uh, there was another version of the experiment where you had Confederate teachers who, instead of instead of refusing to comply, did comply with the uh, with the experimenter. Almost everyone continued with the experiment, so that so the, the presence of other people obeying increased compliance, which is again not surprising given the Ash conformity results. One of the biggest things you can do. So remember, you hold it in a dingy office, obedience goes down like twenty percent or something like that. You have women as the subjects who you might stereotypically think you'd be more empathetic or something doesn't really make any difference you have to physically hold someone's arm to the shock plate uh, obedience goes down by about half but it's still at 30 percent by f- uh, by far one of the biggest things you can do to reduce compliance is to have is to replace the original experimenter by another p- person who was previously identified as basically being a cleric a, cl- a clerk or a secretary or something like that in this version only 20 percent of subjects obeyed fully so this points to a key aspect of, of the reason for the obedience here is authority. And this is um, really what, what it seems that this the key result of this experiment is. It's the apparent legitimate authority of the experimenter in the fact that they were sort of conducting the thing. They were in charge. They were wearing a white lab coat. I don't know if they were wearing a white lab coat in all variations, but certainly in the initial ones they were. I've seen photos of that. Um, so they appeared legitimate. They appeared like they knew what they were doing and they were willing to take responsibility. When they were absent or distant or replaced with some cleric, obedience dropped down dramatically. Now, these ones that I've talked about, uh, these specific results are mostly Milgram's replications, but many exact and very exact replications and, and variations of the experiment have been conducted in different countries with different types of participants, so not just college students. And as I said, the meta-analysis shows very robust results. So, I mean, that leads to the question, is this a lot of conformity uh, or obedience or not very much? Well, it's clearly much higher than most people thought at the time, you know, like 60% compared to 1%. However, on the other hand, that's still, you know, one in three people who at some point refuse to follow orders, um, and in some of the variations, most people refuse to go through with it. So, there is perhaps some cause for optimism there. And there's there's one person who argued here that, um, oh, let me just re- read his quote. People have learned that when experts tell them something is alright, it probably is, even if it doesn't seem so. In fact, it is worth noting that in this case, the experimenter was indeed correct. It was alright to continue giving the shocks, end quote. So, uh, that, that was Robert Schiller there, who's a professor of finance at Yale. That's a very good point, actually, that people generally trust experts, um, especially that if they're associated with science um, in a given field. And so, if the expert tells you it's okay, you have a general heuristic, that is a sort of a rule of thumb, that it is okay, even if it doesn't seem like it's okay. And it turns out it's actually valid in this situation because it was okay. The person wasn't really receiving shocks. It may not be so much an issue of obedience so much as an issue of people were getting information from the fact that an expert was telling them to do something that it must have been okay, an apparently legitimate expert um, nonetheless. Which, which was similar to what we saw in the Ash conformity experiment, whereby it's perhaps arguably not so much an issue of conforming to, to the social norm, but an issue of getting information from what other people were doing. 
So the, the findings of the Milgram obedience experiment have been applied to um, a number of real-world situations to explain, for example, the Holocaust or uh, another um, wartime massacres. The My Lai massacre is another example in the Vietnam War, where, where basically... You can imagine in something like a concentration camp, if you have legitimate authorities, which would be, for example, um, so, uh, higher-ranking members of the SS or military uh, commanders or something like that, if you have other people conforming or obeying, and at least some people are going to do that just because they're sadistic, um, essentially, even if that's a minority, at least some people will do that, and that's, as we saw, is going to increase obedience. If you have a high level of immediacy of those superiors to, to you when you're carrying out your orders, as you might, for example, in a, in a, at a concentration camp or a military facility, and if you have a fair degree of distance between you and those whom your actions are affecting. So, for example, if you're just um, pulling the levers to release the gases in the gas chamber, as a, and you don't actually have to see what's going on in there, or, or actually actually see the people that you're killing. All of those things are going to increase obedience, as we see from the experimental results. And so it's not as surprising, perhaps, that you can get high levels of conformity and obedience in those situations, even though most people, most of the people in that environment might have, you know, if you'd asked them beforehand, have said that they would never do such a thing. Because I think it's one of the, one of the things that is most disturbing about these experiments that we've talked about is that they, as, I, as I've mentioned, they point heavily towards the um, situational rather than the dis- dispositional theories of, of behavior. Now, most people don't like to think in those terms. They like to think that they are a good person and other people do bad things because they're bad people. And there's likely some truth to that, of course, but these experiments all point towards, well, not so much. You and most people, or, well, no one really, but m- most people in particular are not immune from these effects. And that if you were placed in this situation, you probably would obey. In the highest versions of the experiment, like 85% of people or 90% of people obeyed. Yeah, 90% I think was about the highest obedience that was recorded with the right set of circumstances. So about 90% of people, it seems, are willing to kill other people or you know, probably kill them or at least harm them given the right situation and legitimate authority giving orders and so on. And th- there's actually a psychological theory which, which explains why that's the case. This is, called, no, this is known as the agentic state theory. And let, let me read a quote here. The essence of obedience consists in the fact that a person comes to view themselves as an instrument for carrying out another person's wishes, and they therefore no longer see themselves as responsible for their own actions. Once this critical shift of viewpoint has occurred in the person, all of the essential features of obedience follow. End quote. I believe that's from Milgram himself who said that. So, so that seems to be the key thing that was occurring here. People seeing themselves as an instrument of the experimenter. And this was um, this was reinforced by such things as the experimenter saying that they would take responsibility for anything that happened by the experimenter uh, demonstrating their authority and demonstrating that they were in charge and demonstrating that they, they said it was okay, so they knew what was going on. The person was just an instrument in their hands. And when people come to view themselves as that way, they feel disassociated from their own actions and they're more willing to go along with it. There's one very interesting um, real-world version of this experiment which was conducted. It's called the Hoffling Hospital Experiment from 1966. A psychiatrist called Hoffling conducted a field experiment on obedience in nurse physi- in the nurse physician relationship. So, in a natural hospital setting, nurses were ordered by unknown doctors to administer what could have been a dangerous dose of a fictional drug to their patients. So, the drug wasn't real, but it could have been a, it was a dangerously high dose of whatever it was that was being or, that the doctors were ordering be administered by the nurses. Now, there were official guidelines which forbade the administration in such circumstances. I don't even think that the nurses were supposed to administer were supposed to administer, uh, conduct orders from unknown doctors without, like, extra signed orders or something like that. Um, and they weren't supposed to 
they weren't supposed to give da- uh, to give dangerous dose levels if they if they thought it was um, or if it was beyond a certain safety limit or something like that. I, I don't know exactly what what proced- what uh, safety protocols they had in place, but they weren't supposed to. But in spite of these official guidelines, um, twenty one of the twenty two nurses would have given the patient the overdose of the medicine. I don't think I think they were stopped before they actually gave it, but they they were going to do it. That's basically all the nurses were going to ignore the official guidelines and follow the orders of a doctor, basically just because doctors have an authoritative position, it seems. And the, perhaps the, the most bizarre thing about this is that, is that before the nurses did the study, he actually asked them if they would obey the orders of the doctor in this, in this circumstance. And all of them said they wouldn't obey orders. And then basically all of them did obey orders. So that seems to point towards... Um, a previous episode that, I, that I've done about the introspection illusion, uh, episode 7, the introspection illusion, where people are horribly bad at working out their own motivations and the reasons why they do things. And that, once again, th- this would also point towards the situational uh, and away from the, dis- uh, the dispositional theories of, of behavior. Because when the nurses were asked, would you do this? They were thinking dispositionally, would I do this? Well, no, I'm a careful person. I'm a caring person. I would follow the regulations t- to be safe. I wouldn't just follow the orders from some strange doctor I didn't know that apparently told me to do something that was unsafe. But when they were actually in the situation, they found themselves acting very differently. Because and, and they didn't expect that when they were answering the questionnaire because they weren't considering that situational element of, of what was going on. The, the scariest part of that study was that 10 of the 22 nurses had done this before with a different drug, had given a, 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 an, um, an apparently overdose or, um, or something similar based on the orders of a doctor. So this was just one little study in one hospital in the 60s. You can imagine how often this sort of thing happens in real life in hospitals and in other circumstances as well, where people do things that they know are likely to be wrong or stupid or something like that, but just follow orders anyway for these sorts of reasons. Okay, so uh, on that very depressing note, that's the end of this episode. We've covered the Ash Conformity, the Stanford Prison, and the Milgram Obedience Experiments. But I hope you enjoyed this, this episode. If you did, please tell other people about the podcast. I need more listeners. I also need more ratings on iTunes, so... Uh, Log on there and write me a review, give me some stars. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 